A core truth that pops up again and again on this podcast is the remarkable power of small choices. It is often those little, easy-to-overlook decisions we make every day that most shape our experience of life, our impact on others, and ultimately the people we will become. Today's guest is Justin Whitmill Early. Justin is a corporate lawyer in Richmond, Virginia, and also the author of the book, The Common Rule. Years ago, facing a major crisis, a real breakdown in his own life, Justin was confronted by the power of his own habits. He began to see how small choices, often ones he wasn't even aware he was making, were deeply affecting his life, often for ill. He began to explore how our habits are ultimately a form of worship, revealing what we most value and desire, but also how even small shifts in our habits can remake our lives. This is a conversation you won't want to miss. And we get especially practical towards the end in looking at specific practices that by God's grace help us build new habits. Ultimately, to live with the calmer, more self-giving, more joyful hearts that we want and that God desires for His children. To Justice and the Inner Life, presented by the Christian Alliance for Orphans. Together, we'll explore what it takes to sustain a heart of justice and mercy over a lifetime. Here is your host, Jed Medefend. Well, I am here with Justin Whitmill Early, and we are both in the same state, in the state of Virginia, but a little little distance apart. Justin is in Richmond. I am in the Washington, D.C. area today. But Justin, it is great to be with you here. I am so happy you asked. Thanks, Jed. Yeah. So, well, let's just plunge in just a little bit about you first. Uh, give us a, a little glimpse of your life at this point. Husband, father, neighbor, also a lawyer. That's right. That's right. I, uh, at best, I like to do a lot of things. At, at worst, I don't feel like I do anything well, but I am, I am struggling right now to piece together my vocation as husband, father, lawyer, author, and neighbor. So my, my day revolves a lot around my four boys right now. And helping my wife Lauren through raising them. They are aged nine, six, four, and two. So we're in the you are in the thick of it. We're in the thick year, and I feel like that is a metaphor for where we are in life right now. It's like on a a treadmill often comes in mind where I'm like, can I get this thing to slow down? And it just won't slow down because amidst that, yes, I'm a, I'm a business lawyer, a corporate lawyer, so I help people negotiate deals and write the contracts to make those deals. And that's a vocation of words, which I love. It's about picking the right words, negotiating with the right words, helping people find the right words for their situation. And that translates, I think, well to what I also love to do as a passion, and that is write and speak. And right now, that's been a lot of writing and speaking on habits and how they, how, how habits form us spiritually. So to some people, that might be a lot of disparate things. But to me, it's a lot about formation and words. I'm thinking every day about how do I form my sons? How do I speak to them well? How do I form this deal up? How do I negotiate this contract using the right words? And how do I give a talk or write a chapter using the right words? So the, the Lord seems to have given me a vocation of words, and I'm grateful for that so far. Let's jump back in time a little bit. And uh, you and your wife were missionaries in China for about five years uh, a little while mm -hmm. back. So what what first drew you into the mission field and missions work? Two things. I grew up as a Christian but I really decided to follow Jesus for myself and despite anything else 
around my end of my first, second year of college. So I remember when I really started following Jesus that second year that I wanted to be open to what he would have me do with my life. And so I, I you know, would pray about that often. I was in a, uh, a punk band at the time. And we had thought about touring. <laughs> did you have, and cutting did a, you have the spike hair, and, purple, any of that? Or? Oh man, I had a lot of stuff. <laughs> I was a more like long hair, shaggy guy. I, I was a drummer. Just, just for everyone, I'll tell it. everyone, you know, here on Zoom, Justin looks reasonably respectable, nice burly <laughs> yeah. beard, but still, you know, short cropped hair on the top. So, you know, very, very, right. very solidly uh, respectable. My, my t-shirts with holes in them are gone. And now I have to wear a college shirt to be taken seriously with my clients. <laughs> but, um, but I, you know, I th- so I thought a lot about should, should I tour with my band after college or should I follow, you know, or, or should I do something else? And my father also began his years after college as a missionary and then maybe unsurprisingly became a lawyer. So I had a footprint of saying, you know, starting in missions is just a, a thing that my family did. That seems like a neat idea. But really, I felt like the Lord pushed me into that. And I was happy to say, yes, I was thrilled to think about partnering with the ministry I was in at the time and being sent to, to China. And that my wife and I lived in China for almost five years after college. And that experience was so formative for us in the most wonderful ways that I couldn't even name then. I mean, the Lord was teaching us how to live in a ministry team, you know, how to work a marriage in a foreign culture. I mean, we had so much bonding, my wife and I, mm. you know, learning how to fundraise, learning how to write prayer letters. We had you know, more fights that year about how to do the important stuff. And then the Lord helped us figure it out. And I think he really, those first five years, we didn't have kids. So he, he really like gave us a strong foundation. Um, and I would not have left China. I think I would have stayed there as a long time and maybe even a lifetime missionary if I didn't feel like the Lord had actually specifically called us back for me to go to law school, which is step two. Um, yeah. Usually the calling's opposite. People are working in a law firm or a bank or business or teaching, and then they feel called to the mission field somewhere far away. You were somewhere far away and felt called to something that actually was more near to your prior life to serve the Lord there. Tell us about that. And I could, and I have actually before given a whole like seminar on vocation based around this moment in my mm-hmm. life. I'll, I'll keep it to the two minute story here, but Calling and vocation, I just think, is a fascinating and wonderful thing for followers of Jesus to dive into. For me, I did feel called to my work in China, but I had an experience one day on the streets of Shanghai where in the span of five minutes, I saw um, black market thief. I was offered drugs, drug dealer, um, saw open brothels and prostitutes, and saw a political protester. Now, those first three things I saw every day in China. The political protester I only saw once in my five years in China. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine in that five minutes, which was the one that was re- arrested immediately. So I had this experience where I watched a political protester be arrested for carrying a sign that said the judicial system in China is broken. And it was a watershed moment for me looking at out of the four things that were illegal, because all of those things were illegal in China and still are. Um, you know, three of them were good ways to make money and tolerated despite being against the law. And one of them made you no money, but was kind of a brave act of love for neighbor, I thought. And that got you, you know, arrested immediately. And it was, for me, it was one of those eye-opening moments. I I knew that was true my whole time in China. And I knew this is true a lot of places in the world. And by the way, I know, and we can get to that, that America has its own issues. But for me, that was a moment where I realized, you know, how you structure your economic and political incentives matters to the way the ordinary person lives and can or cannot or is incentivized or incentivized not to 
follow Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I just felt this tremendous sense of call in the two weeks following that, that I wanted to be a missionary to that. Like I wanted to help and I wanted to learn about how institutions and patterns, whether economic or political, matter for our moral decisions and matter for our plausibility structures, to use a $10 word, uh, about how we can or can't or want to or don't want to follow Jesus. And so I just like sunk into me and I felt the Lord calling me. And so my response to that was within two weeks, I was applying to law and business school to really start to honestly get a training on on learning about law and business and how those come together. And so and that ended up putting me into the profession of corporate lawyering, where I still feel very much called as a, you know, a person, a missionary. I still actually love to use that word within the vocation of lawyering. And by that, I mean, I am here to bring the influence of the gospel to bear on the places that I'm given to steward. And that's negotiations and deals and clients with emergencies and trying to help them to, to do it well. I love that. I love that. We're, you know, we're probably not gonna be able to camp out there as long as I would want, but I just want to <laughs> affirm the significance of seeing that space as the mission field, right? And that, that, yes. that, in fact, that's what Jesus was talking about when he talked about the kingdom of God breaking forth, that the kingdom of God is his effective will, as Dallas Willard says, it's where God wants, where what, what he mm -hmm. wants to happen happens on earth as it is in heaven. And you're seeking for that to be the case in the, in the realm of corporate law and all that's that right. happens and how that affects clients and businesses and employees and the whole, whole culture all around that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I will say it's not easy, but it, it's not, I've not lost, I guess, the shine or motivation. I mean, it's still clear to me that wherever you are, there is plenty of kingdom work to be done and it matters, you know, so it's hard, but it matters. And I think, I think the Lord has, you know, still called me here. Yeah. You know, this podcast, while, while initially created for people, who in some way were pouring out in something that people would have defined as ministry, whether leading a nonprofit, serving as a volunteer, being a, a, a foster parent, an adoptive parent, social worker, you know, serving in those government capacity on service. The reality is that anyone who is living kingdom life, who is seeking to affect God's good purposes in the sphere where they are given, they are pouring out. They're they're Amen. going up against battles. They're experiencing hard things. Amen. And yep. these these habits that we're gonna be talking about that feed the soul, they are just as essential whatever sphere you're you're living in. That's absolutely right. Because if I've learned one thing about trying to live missionally within lawyering, it's that it really does matter. And whatever matters is hard. Mm. If you're doing something mm -hmm. that matters to the kingdom, and I hope everybody who's listening is or sees that they have the opportunity to, it's hard. And and you realize there's a lot of forces working back on you, natural and supernatural, that don't want you to maintain that vision of things mattering. Mm -hmm. And so you either hit apathy or you hit burnout or you hit this is just too hard. I want to. And it's hard. And you need and I, I suspect we're about to get into this. You need habits of discipleship that that helps spiritually form you for that very difficult task of living missionally in your vocation. Okay, so let's plunge toward that. So so we're back in your story. You you're at law school, you 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 charge through it, working your tail off, do well, then you plunge into the practice of law, but little by little you feel yourself unraveling, exhaustion, mm -hmm. Yes. sleeplessness, anxiety, what is happening there? Something major happened my first year of practice, and it's taken me years to figure it out. But what I think happened is that I went back to start law school with all the fervor of a missionary, a man on a call. 
So I worked my tail off doing it. And, and I thought, and in many senses still think there was something to that. You know, I wanted to do excellent work. You know, I wanted to work like I was serving the Lord. The thing is that that got conflated to me, I guess, with what I now see as you know, law school. And I think many grad schools and many jobs that we care about, they're, they're formation machines. So you get into them and you do what everybody else is doing. You try to figure out how do they do it to make it right. And so for me to graduate, you know, near the top of my class and to get the job I wanted, I assimilated relatively unconsciously to all the patterns of the, you know, the high powered lawyer or law school, the top law school student doing that. And that was, you know, always adding more obligations and never saying no and, you know, staying up later and waking up earlier. And I didn't think that was a problem because that's what we all did. That's how you did well. And I did, did do well. So, you know, I graduated near the top of my class and got my dream job in corporate mergers and acquisitions down here in Richmond, Virginia. I'd had my first two sons, um, Lauren and I had two boys by the time I graduated law school. And so I came down to Richmond, took the bar exam, passed it, and I'm into my first couple months of lawyering. And I would have told you that I was overwhelmed and exhausted. I just didn't think that was a problem. I thought that was normal. But I now see in retrospect that this calling, phrasing that I just talked about, you know, that was a decoration on the house of my life. And it really was a true, sincere decoration. But the architecture of my life had become to be built just like everybody else's with these crazy habits of, of busyness and, and it collapsed. It all fell apart. And so what that looked like was a couple months into my new job. One night I woke up just full of an existential panic that I had never felt before. I didn't know what a panic attack was at the time. So I just thought something was wrong. I managed to fall back asleep, but the next night it happened again. And I ended up about 36 hours later, you know, having, having not been able to sleep for almost 36 hours straight going to the emergency room where a doctor told me in what is now the most anticlimactic moment of my life, that there was nothing really wrong with me. I was just showing signs of clinical anxiety. Mm. And they gave me some sleeping pills and told me that this is very common, like that was comforting. <laughs> yeah. And it, it wasn't. Yeah. And sent me Because home. it's common, it's yeah. actually somehow right. okay and healthy. It was at now, knowing what I know now, and I'm sure there are many people listening to this, it's like, oh yeah, you know, I've experienced that. It is actually extremely uncomforting to know how common this is. Mm-hmm. Because it means, and we'll get to this, that something is in the water, something is in the air, something is in our normal routine of habits that pushes us there and that makes this a very typical experience for many people. Now, mine was exacerbated because I went home and took the sleeping pills, and I didn't know at the time that I respond um, horribly to sleeping pills. So on top of the really difficult anxiety and insomnia that I had, I started getting the, the mood swings and almost like hallucinogenic nightmares and it came, it came to the point where I even started having suicidal thoughts. And I, at this point, I realized something really bad was happening. I got rid of the sleeping meds. But I, I'll never forget, I was standing in the kitchen one night with my wife about a month into this. And she asked me to, she hands me a pile of dishes to put away. And I take them from her. And then I look back at her and hand them back and say, I don't know where these go. And that was a moment I'll never forget. Because I remember I just went upstairs and started crying, thinking, all right, if my mind is getting so thin that I can't put the dishes away, um, how am I going to keep my job? How am I going to pay back my student debt? But even more, how am I going to be the father, the friend, the husband, mm. the missionary to law and business that I wanted to be? This was everything was sort of threatened. And I had gotten rid of the sleeping pills, but I was still needing a couple glasses of wine just to fall asleep at night. And that was I put words to this in the past, in retrospect. I didn't really have this phrasing then, but I look back and I think, wait. It, 
the missionary got converted. And in very short order, in very short order, the missionary to law and business had become converted to the nervous medicating lawyer. And the question that stayed with me for ever since, uh, but really took a couple of years to solve was just, how did that happen? How did I get converted in such short order? Mm, mm. And I think that the answer was um, by habit. Okay. So there's some really big themes here we're going to be dealing with. There's this concept of habit and how these small daily choices, often unnoticed, unchosen perhaps, um, come to shape us profoundly. Also the idea of formation, right? That there are, there are certain things that form our soul, whether or not we're aware of it, whether or not we've chosen it, there are various things in our life that are forming us to be either more like Jesus or less like Jesus over time. For a moment, before we get to focus on those themes, what do you sense looking back was underneath all of that? What was driving you to this relentless busyness, this this driving mm-hmm. yeah. towards achievement that, that ultimately then led you into certain habits and formation? That Yeah, that's a great question. I think the easy answer is my pride and ambition. I think the harder part of that is how deeply intertwined my ambition was with actually the good calling that God mm-hmm. had in my life. Mm-hmm. I just think it is eminently natural and it is so easy for us to take what is a good calling parenting, leading your nonprofit, running for office, being a lawyer, uh, being a missionary, and our desire to own that and do well at that, that is, and for me, it's to be God instead of to serve God. And I think all of us have our own version of that. I think, I think drove me to want, really to deeply want to succeed, which meant I had to live a certain way. And which meant all of those small sacrifices of sleeplessness and unhealth and all the things that I knew were issues, but I didn't think were big ones, were just, uh, you know, s- sweep them under the radar. And he- here's how I know this. I mean, what happened was about a year after this experience, I'm sitting at a table with two of my really good friends. And on the table, we're at a restaurant. It's just after New Year's. And we're talking about, you know, sort of like New Year's habits. And I'm, I'm asking them to keep me accountable to this program of daily and weekly habits. And the reason I'm asking them is because my wife and I had just struggled through this awful year where I was like on the verge of panic and anxiety the whole time. I tried medication, tried counseling. Nothing was really seeming to move the needle. But I was there that night because as almost as a last ditch effort, my wife and I were like, well, why don't we try just reigning in your chaos through some daily and weekly rhythms just to keep your schedule more calm and you know get you time to rest. And I was trying to be a good boy and just say, yes, I'll do it, even though I didn't think any of this would matter. Um, because I had no idea at the time how much the actual, the small, incremental, tiny, daily and weekly habits that look like ordinary stuff. I had no idea how much these small, ordinary habits actually do form our souls in extraordinary and deep ways. And after that night of asking my friends to keep me accountable to these, you know, silly small habits, a couple months later, my life was drastically changing. And I was, I was suddenly starting to feel different. I was walking clo- more closely with the Lord than I ever had. I'm not saying this was all a quick fix, like everything was better, but something was changing. Mm-hmm. I had turned a corner. And that's when I started to realize maybe this small stuff is a lot bigger than I thought. Maybe these, maybe the idolatry, cause I knew in my head the whole time, don't make the law an idol. Don't make your profession an idol. <laughs> The, the Lord, keep the Lord number one. All the things that we say, that they're easy to say. I had no idea that the real battleground for that stuff was in the small habits. 
And once I started working in those, I started realizing my heart is changing because my habits are changing. I never had thought about this before. Very significant. Well, let's let's dig into that habits. Why? So there's been a quite actually quite a few books on habit recently, right? Atomic habits and yes. power of habit, and mm -hmm. I think there's a, actually maybe a broader social awareness that these little things that many of us are completely unaware. We're doing, in fact, probably all of us have habits we're, we're completely unaware of, right? right? But they are they are extremely significant and powerful. So j just unpack that a little bit. Why are habits so significant? Yeah, that's right. right. So the way that I sum it up in, in the book, The Common Rule, is, you know, I, I look at that time and I think all right, my, my heart and even my body had finally become converted to these patterns of anxiety and busyness that my habits and routines worshipped. Now, that's a loaded statement. So why would it be true? that our habits and routines are actually liturgies of worship, for example, and why would they actually form us and convert our heart and body? So that's where a little bit of neurology and a little bit of theology goes a long way. Mm -hmm. um, and I, we've already established I'm a corporate lawyer who does some writing on the side. I'm not a neurologist. I'm not a theologian. So, you know, I'll say at the 60-second high level here, but a lot of the great work and books that have been written on habits recently focus on the neurology of habit. The power of habit is probably one of the best summaries of the neurology and mm -hmm. psychology of habit. Yeah, and probably. what you'll find in a in a book like that is we've we've learned in the past two decades of modern research that that habit activity happens in a very deep part of our brain called the basal ganglia, which means um, that our habits can go on churning even while our top order thinking is doing something else. And this is great, of course, for when we're driving home. You know, we can listen to the radio or have a great conversation and we don't make a wrong turn because we're just doing it all safely by habit. When it's a bad habit, this way that our brain is separated hamstrings us because if it's a, you know, an evening routine of addiction, like I was dabbling in, or if it's a, a daily routine of needless anxiety about work, which many of us dabble in, or even more, some morning routine of mindless submission to an operating system that is specifically designed to attract our attention and sell it to advertisers. We call it smartphones. Mm -hmm. When it's those kind of routines, our, our heads know better. We all know we don't want to be addicted to that or we don't want to open our phone again this morning. I don't want to scroll. I don't want to keep criticizing. I don't. But that part of our head that knows better is not the part that's turning the habit along. The part that's turning the habit along is not working off that kind of education. It's working off pattern formation. And the point here is that, you know, when your head goes one way and, and your habit goes another way, your heart almost invariably will follow the habit. And that's where you get to the really important theology here. And I think the best way to sum that up is just, is just to say, if that is how habits work, small, repetitive, under the radar, but really formative to our actions and hard to change, then it'd be really useful for us to look at them in terms of liturgy. Because liturgy is so similar to the definition of habit. It's the things that we do over and over that become semi to unconscious. And now, of course, the goal of liturgy is to be is worshipful and to be formed in the image of what we worship, formed in the image of the triune God. The only thing different between the definition of liturgy and habit is that liturgy owns up to the idea that it's worship. Habits, of course, often obscure what we worship, but because the formation aspect is the same, really habits are worship under the radar. And I look back at my time, you know, in my schedule in that early part of lawyering, and I think, oh, this liturgy, this habit I have 
of checking my email first thing every morning and trying to get off a few work emails before I even got out of bed. There was a liturgy of identity there. Like, I've got to be the first responder. I've got to be quick. I've got to be always on the clock. And I think about my just my routine of busyness that I wanted to change, but I couldn't change because it was under the radar. I now see a liturgy of importance because being busy means people want your time. And it was really hard to say no to people because I wanted to stay important. You know, um, I now see that my constant tethering to screens, which I thought was a way to be, you know, always informed and updated and in touch with friends and work. There was a liturgy of omniscience and omnipresence there. There was, there was actually a liturgy that I can be like God everywhere, know everything, be updated on everything and, and actually respond urgently in real time. And, and I would sum all that up to say, I look at the water that I swam in, which is, by the way, really typical for most modern Americans. And I see that we're swimming in a water of habit that is by nature liturgies of omniscience, omnipresence, limitlessness, all these things of trying to be God instead of worship God. All these ways of going against what we should actually be, we were created to be, is that is limited creatures who worship God. And now I look at that and I think, well, no wonder we're falling apart. No wonder I fell apart. It is uh, idols, idols form us. And when we worship the idol of limitlessness, um, we start to veer off the guardrails and unsurprisingly, you know, we, we crash. And so a lot of my question now is how do I think about my daily and weekly habits as liturgies of worship to who God really is with the acknowledgement of who I really am? And that's a humble, you know, posture and say, how do I live into that rather than into the strange water of American habits, which puts us into all these crazy idols of busyness. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and that's really a central question for me every day now. That's a central question of how to live. Yes. So at the core of this, it sounds to me like there's this realization that every human being has certain things we worship. Like, like Bob Dylan yes. saying, right, you're going to serve someone, you're going to serve something. And all, so all of us yes. do, we may say we're unreligious, we say we're agnostic, but there are certain things that we value so much. We love them and prize them so much that we yes. are worshiping them. And that worship takes the form that you could either call liturgies, if you're uh, explicitly religious, or you That's could right. actually call them habits. They're things that That's you right. do repetitively each day, each week, each year that really show what you most value. Yes, yes. And I, I love, that is the kernel of this whole thing. And I love that Bob Dylan or American novelist David Foster Wallace in his famous graduation speech um, on water or James Clear writing Atomic Habits, a New York Times bestselling book, or John Calvin or Tim Keller or the Bob, we all have this common theme. People from all areas acknowledge that we make our life about something and that is most properly called worship and that that something changes us. And so we're going to be formed in the image of what we worship. I mean, the salt, that's how the psalmist put it. That those who make and trust in idols will become like them. And that idea that we are always worshiping and that that worship is forming us is phenomenally significant to the realm of habit and to all of our life. But once we see it's happening in habit, it's happening in the places we didn't think it was happening. I think that's when we make the important move away from everything about my walk with Jesus. It's just education and what I know and what I read and what I listen to and what I can learn. That is really important. And I would never minimize 
what you watch, what you podcast, what you read, what you study. But I would try to marry that. And I think disciples of Jesus need to marry that with what do you do? What do you practice? How do you wake up? How do you go to bed? How do you talk to your kids? These these more under the radar habits, that's what we call formation. And when education and formation come together, that's what we really call discipleship, where you're really trying to talk. Neurologists would call it talk, you know, integrating your brain, you know, bringing your top top order thinking to your lower order thinking. And I think Christians would call it discipleship. It's it's when we marry our education and our formation. We don't just think about what we know and what we learn, but we think about what we practice and what we do. And that's a, it's really important. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. And that, that distinction I, I think is helpful uh, the, between education and formation, because I, I do think often Christians, whichever of those two words they use, they're primarily thinking about ideas, um, which is certainly a part of education and, and in, in many ways underlies formation as well, mm-hmm. but it is mm-hmm. not the whole, right? And that the, yes. Yes. the ultimate goal of, of the follower of Christ is not simply that they're thinking certain thoughts and certain ideas in line with God, which is indeed important, but it is their whole being is in line with God's good purposes. And so that our emotions are feeling the good things that God intends for us and that our hands are doing and molding the good things that God has Mm -hmm. for us. And that, that is more moving from education into the sphere of formation. Is that right? I think, yeah. And I, I mean, the best education is always going to make you go do something, you know, Theology is meant to be applied into life and love. Um, and any formation is going to have a telos or a purpose. Like any habit or routine, even if you don't know why you're doing it, it's pushing you towards something. And I think the, I think it's actually really refreshing as a follower of Jesus to realize that life can be integrated and you don't have to do things that you don't understand why they're, you're doing them. And you don't have to learn things that are unapplied. It is a real pleasure in life to apply what you learn about God to life and to take your small habits of using your smartphone and realize this is probably the most important component of my discipleship to Jesus mm-hmm. in the year 2021. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like how you're using your smartphone is most likely the most significant factor in your walk with God. Let's do some theology on that. Let's do some yes. you know formative yes. practice on that. Let's take that really seriously. Like Like the way we take alcohol habits and sex habits um, and child rearing habits. Wait, the church knows that we need to think about those things and teach and talk about those things. And we need to do that with technology, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, I, we, we won't focus here yet, but I, I, I would just thoroughly agree for many believers, many followers of Christ, how we choose to deal with our smartphones, the places where we say we will use it here. It's, it's, a, there's a value we will. And over here, we are not going to allow it to have its way with us at meal times or when it's time to sleep mm-hmm. or, or those things. Those choices for, for many are, are the single most important choices they will make this year about discipleship. Little, little things. So easy to yep. overlook, right? Yep. Habits. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So. This is all flowing from this idea that all of us worship something. We value certain things tremendously, so much so that then we both consciously and unconsciously align our lives with those highest values. We can call that liturgy. We could call it habit. But over time, that begins to form us in very powerful ways that we – uh, much more fundamentally than we might even understand. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so you are arguing in in your book the common rule – 
first of all, for an awareness of that, right? Because so many of us can live a whole lifetime without even being aware. So that's, that's huge. Step Um, one, right? Step one. Step two, though, is beginning, you argue, for being intentional about the habits Mm -hmm. that you live by, by naming them, by choosing them, by putting this on paper and saying this in, in moments of clarity, right? When you've stepped back from your life, say, this is how I want to live. This is what I really want to worship. I really believe these things to be true and of the highest value. I want to worship God and God alone and align my life with that. And then I'm going to translate that into daily habits and practices. And you call this a rule. So describe that. That word might feel off-putting to some, right? So so explain what you mean by a rule. You summarize the theory perfectly. Habits will form us, so let's choose them on purpose. As it turns out, my realization in the wake of my crisis that habits form us so we should choose them on purpose was not new at all. (laughs) The church had been working on stuff and talking about this for thousands of years. So I remember I was showing my pastor a sort of almost spreadsheet of the things that I was working on, which would be completely overwhelming to anyone. But I was a person in crisis, so I needed some some good boundaries. (laughs) And and, um, he was like, oh, it almost amusedly, he, he was like, Oh, I see what you've done here. You've created a rule of life for habits. And I said, what is a rule of life? In the famous words of the person who goes on to write a book about it. So I learned, I started looking at this. I learned that for thousands of years, really since the church fathers like Augustine and St. Benedict, um, at least the monastic tradition had this idea of a rule that was not at all what it sounds like. It wasn't a set of things you have to do to obey and earn God's love. What they were what they were doing is they were taking the a Latin root of a word. I think I, I don't know how to pronounce Latin, but it's like regular, regulare, and it connoted a bar or a trellis. And the idea of a rule of life was more like the trellis of life. They were asking if we're going to live in this community amidst this declining culture of Rome that Augustine and Benedict were around. What are the what's the trellis of habit? What's the trellis of choices that would allow us to grow into the love of God and neighbor that we were that we're called to? And so you, you can look at this over time and monasteries have kept in, in many Christian communities, spiritual communities have had a rule of life, which basically means the communal habits that everyone is going to try to assimilate to in order to grow into a lover of God and neighbor. And so as I started looking at that habit, those daily and weekly patterns that I laid on the table with my friends that night, I started realizing, Oh, this is what anybody in a monastery would have called a rule of life. What would it? be like, because suddenly I realized, I said this earlier, law school is a formation machine. Law firms are formation machines. A household is a formation machine. A church is. Wait wait a minute. Shouldn't we all, if we're all supposed to be living missionally and in some sense sense with a monastic devotion to Jesus, shouldn't we all have like a more common layman's version of a rule of life, Mm -hmm. which is where the common rule came from? So what I was trying to answer in the book as I started to think about this is what would a regular, common person's version of a community-based rule of life, which is why it ended up being called the common rule, and which is why, if you look at the cover, it has a calendar as a trellis for a plant on it. Because it's asking the question, how would we just apply the wisdom of the rule of life to a moment of of smartphones and busyness and and, an American work culture and strange ideas of freedom and all these? So, so that's the idea. It's to ask just, and so I tried to write about habits that could be applied really by anyone, not just lawyers, um, 
and, and not just me, but men and women, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, accountants, stay-at-home parents, whatever. What are the kinds of habits we should think about every day to become disciples of Jesus and lovers of God and neighbor in the place that we're in? And, and Jed, I got to mention that it, in the midst of this time, somebody sent me an article in the Washington Post about around New Year's. I can't remember what year it was, but they're like, this guy's talking about what you're talking about. He has a rule of life for technology. And I read it and I didn't know your name at the time, but I was like, this is a great article. I flagged it. You know? <laughs> and so the Lord was working in my life as you were had already developed many of these thoughts, but I'm glad we found each other. Me too. Me too. Well, you know, Justin, it seems so significant how in some ways countercultural this sounds, right? Because the idea of embracing a rule feels to the American sensibility that is all about, you know, throwing off fetters and its liberty and freedom, yes. it, it, it might feel constraining, but it seems like that is missing two really critical things. First of all, the fact that we actually all have rules. We are all mm -hmm. being, yes. our lives are being shaped by habits that we are living out. And so the, the real question isn't whether we'll have habits that form us. It's whether we will be aware of that process and choose yes. it and decide right. what we really want or not, right? And we will just in, right. be, be formed by external factors and advertisements and, and the culture at our work or whatever it is, right? So first of it That's is, exactly right. is, is, is just acknowledging that either way we're going to be formed by habits. I think also it, it gets to the question of well, what is true freedom? Is is true freedom being able to do anything I want to do? Is it being able to mm -hmm. lay on the floor and thrash about? Is that freedom, right? <laughs> or, or is freedom the capacity to do what is good? The the right. ability to consistently do that. And if it's right. if it's the former, then yeah, this this stuff is is uh, constraining. If it's the yes. latter, then of course we are pressing closer to true freedom, actually, by choosing certain ways of living. That's right. And that was one of the core epiphanies that I feel so grateful that the Lord like worked in my life during this time. Because I think, like most Americans, I used to think that true freedom was the ability to do what you wanted to do in any mm -hmm. given moment, mm -hmm. which is why I knew at the time that many of the choices I was making on a daily basis were unwise, the way that I used my phone, the way that I scheduled my day, the way that I was always distracted. But I would never do something like, all right, I'm going to turn off my phone for this hour of the day, or I'm going to, I'm going to say no to this engagement because I always thought, well, no, I always, I want to be able to do what I want to do in the moment. So I'm not going to cut off any of my options. That version of freedom, which is very much the American definition of freedom, mm -hmm. the ability to do what you mm -hmm. want to do, the individual to do what they want to do in any given moment, is probably the most enslaving ideology that you can start to live under. Because, And, I, and now I had the life story to prove it. I, I realized that living according to that definition of freedom had made me a slave to busyness, had made me a slave to technology, mm -hmm. had made me a, a slave to my own idolatries. I mean, I by worshiping freedom, I became a slave to unseen masters. Mm. And that is kind of like what you said. The question is not whether we're going to have a rule of life. The question is, whose rule of life are we going to be living under? Yes. The question is not, do we have a program of habits that's guiding most of our choices and leading our heart? No, the question is just, which habits and where is your heart going? And similarly, the question of human freedom is not, are you going to have a master or not? It's actually just, Who's master, which master are you going to submit to? Who are you going to serve? And as it turns out that like, this is what helped me finally understand. I think why Paul could say I'm a slave to righteousness. And that was a good thing mm -hmm. or that Jesus could say, take on my burden. And that that was actually a good thing 
Because now I see that real freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want to do. Real freedom is the ability to live how you are meant to live. And that means to live as an image bearer of Jesus. It means to live as a created being who has a God to follow. And that is truly freeing, but requires living in the right limitations. So freedom's not, how, how do I throw off all limitations? Freedom is how do you pick the right ones? And that's where I'm like, oh, okay, I got to, our call then is to pick carefully, choose our rule of life carefully, choose our habits carefully, because we're going to be living in someone's limitations. It might as well be the limitations of the God who made us and loves us and wants to bring us into the fullness of life with him. That is freedom. That's real freedom. And yes, I, I can say that from a posture of, I, I say that and I'm so grateful. I'm, I'm so, I'm, I feel like the life that I live with my boys and as an attorney and as a writer is still stressful and hard, but I feel so much more free than I used to. I feel like I'm, I'm actually, the Lord is with me in it. And I don't feel like I'm butting up against the yoke of a master who doesn't love me anymore. Mm. In the common rule, you share eight specific habits or rhythms that you and, and your wife and family have have adopted as yours and embedded into your days and into your weeks. And we won't get into all those that someone has to, to, yeah. to get the book to, to get all those. Right. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but how about maybe pick one and let's just explore a little bit, you know, what, what why you chose it and then what it has looked like in, in your life. Yeah. I mean, hopefully people are in suspense by now. Like, well, what are these habits? <laughs> and and they actually don't have to go buy the book. You can see them all online for free at the commonrule.org. <laughs> and if you really want to read in depth, you can get the book. But um, let me share two with you. And I'm going to pick these two both because they've been, I think, some of the most formative habits for me, particularly during our year of quarantine and pandemic. And And those two would be the daily habit of scripture before phone and the weekly habit of carving out an hour for intentional conversation with a friend. So daily habit of scripture before phone and weekly habit of conversation with friends on the daily habits. So I've spent a lot of my life with smartphones and smartphones have been in my life for about 10 years. So almost half of it, I spent just sort of, again, thinking in the freedom context of I, I open my phone when I want to and you know, I'll be free if I'm able to choose and I'll, I'll choose well. I'll learn to choose well. Well, as it turns out, phones and what we look at is are incredibly formative because, of course, there's a thousand people behind the screen programming to try to get your attention and sell to advertisers. So this really shouldn't be a surprise to people. I think the surprise is just how powerful it is. And I'll take the beginning of the pandemic. Now, I already had I had been working on this habit of scripture before phone for years. But one of the things that happened right when the pandemic began is the news cycle became really important, almost like life or death to your health. I mean, we didn't know how bad this virus was. We didn't know what to do. And I, it was a time in my life where I began to start to look at my phone again every morning. And I began to see very quickly the effects of this because I'd done this in my law firm. Um, and then I had stopped. And then I, I started again at the early stages of the pandemic. And I realized something powerfully formative happens to you when you spend the first moments of your day with your phone. Um, if it's social media, you, you know, you will unconsciously begin to compare yourself to what you see. Like but you have zero chance, like mm -hmm. your tired eyes mm -hmm. are looking at pictures of other people's houses and other people's children's and white backgrounds and clean floors and all this stuff. And you, you begin to wonder, 
why doesn't your life look like that? Or if you start your day in Twitter um, or news media, you, like there are, now we can use this phrase and everybody knows what it means. There are logies of anger going on there. Uh, social media companies know and news companies know that anger is addictive and that people come back if they're offended by what they see. They actually get engaged. It drives engagement. It drives clicks. It drives mm -hmm. like, and there you are spending the first moments of your day worried about whether the world's going to go on another day if this if this or that politician keeps tweeting. And and then, of course, there was the reasonable fear of the pandemic and all that stuff going on. And so it was just one of those moments where I realized once again, oh, my gosh, my heart goes through the grinder if I look at my phone first thing in the, in the day. And it just it's so important, I think, for believers to say, if I'm going to have any hope at engaging well with social media or engaging well with my inbox or engaging well with the news, we have got to relocate our hearts on a habitual morning by morning basis to teach not just our head education, right? But our heart formation that today is another day where God loves us, is going to care for us and is providentially guiding the world and us to good things. And that becomes unbelievable in like the, the tumult of 2020, right? It, it is, if you start your day in your phone, you will not, you will not on a gut level believe those promises of God. And so one of the most powerful things I think we can do is to reverse that order. Say, I'm going to go find, remind myself and remind my gut, head, heart, everything, who God is and, and that he loves us mm. and that things are going to be okay. And then go into all those things now, not looking for our love, now not looking for our peace, now not wondering if the world's going to be okay, but knowing that it is, knowing we're loved, knowing we have reason for peace and we can engage there in love. And I think that changes a lot. So that's one of the most powerful yes. daily habits for me. And you unless know, you, well, and I just, I, I want to, you know, for everyone who is listening and whether, you know, you're out jogging or you're in the car and you're listening to this, I just would want to directly speak to you and encourage you. Hey, try this. If, if, if nothing else, start, start yeah. with this. And this one thing truly can alter the experience of a day. It really can alter mm -hmm. the emotional life of, of your yes. day. And I, you know, this is, has been something I've, I've been doing for many years as well. And I feel like whenever I don't kind of like you were describing of yes. slipping back into it at a certain time, it is amazing how unsettled that I yes. feel throughout the day when the first thoughts of my day, when the seeds, those deepest seeds of the day are seeds of discontent, yes. anger, fear, you know, whatever it yeah. might be, jealousy. Um, if that is what this starts the day, Man, the rest of it is just going to be more of the same. It but is, if yeah. the day begins in the presence of my good father, knowing that he has all things in his hands, that my first identity before anything I accomplish is that I am his beloved son in whom he is well pleased even before I achieve anything. If that is my deepest identity, if that is my emotional beginning of the day, then it is a very different day. And I, oh, I just, <laughs> I would want to beg people to, to do that, to start yes. the day, not in yes. the presence of who, whatever Twitter or whoever else wants to jam into your phone and into your face, but in the presence of God in his word and, and mm -hmm. in a, a moment of calm and quiet and worship, and then, then enter into that, that river uh, when you need to. And if you're like me, you know, you're out there at some point wondering, that sounds great, but that can't really matter that much. It's just too small to matter. Or like, that sounds like a neat life hack, but honestly, is it that much of a game changer? And I think I just want to say to that person, I mean, yes. I mean, I, I still am a quote unquote busy, you know, father and lawyer, but small moments matter. 
And if we believe this habit psychology that says small things are actually big things, and if we believe what we're told in the Bible that Scripture actually changes us, and if we believe our tradition of theology that says the human heart is really kind of prone to worship bad things all the time, Mm -hmm. those things come together and say all of these are at play in your first moment of the morning. You are prone to worship weird stuff all the time. Scripture changes you. And small moments matter. Mm. And put that together in the moment of Scripture before phone and say, I'm weak. I need to be careful. Scripture is strong. It cares for me. And small things matter. Let's make a small decision this morning. It is amazing. The Lord is faithful to show up and use that small moment as a big change. Yes. So I would yes. al- I would also beg everybody to <laughs> try it. <laughs> try it. You know, uh, so the the Christian Alliance for Orphans, KFO staff, um, we the first 60 days of this year, we actually did the KFO Tech Challenge. And oh, wow. there was three three pieces to it. Um, one was uh, actually ending the day um, that our final thoughts of the day would not be d- dominated by our phone, but we'd turn our phone off mm. 30 minutes or more before sleep. And so that final thoughts of the day oh, could like finish like with being mm-hmm. present with our spouse or, or other things yeah. and then sleep and then not turning back on until after time with God. Yeah, so beginnings was, and ends yeah. matter. I like that. Yeah. I like that. And then the other was, was not, um, not using a phone at a, at a common table with others at a mealtime. Mm, um, and and it just was that. wonderful processing that with uh, the other members of the staff as they were going through it. And for some of them, this was, this was new to them. And just how profoundly they felt it was affecting their emotional state throughout the day, their relationships, yes. uh, their, their thoughts towards God, towards others, so many things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, that seems to me a good jumping point to finish this second habit, which because when you said no phones at the table, it reminds me of the what we're looking for when we're together, and that is each other's presence. Mm-hmm. I mean, and this is, I'm going to jump to friendship here, but technology is obviously deeply intertwined in this habit because technology has created a world where we're now always wondering, am I just going to be with this person or in this room, or am I going to be present? That is now a common choice. And so mm-hmm. a lot of the, what I'm, what I recommend in one of the weekly habits of the common rule, and that's spending an hour in vulnerable conversation with friends. That's sort of trying to embrace the idea that we are not autonomous individuals who can just make our identity out in the world on the, on our own, but we are created image bearers of God made in the image of a triune God who, who, you know, God looks at Adam in the garden and he says, it's not good that you're alone. Keep in mind, God is there. God's looking at Adam and saying, you're alone. As in, you need someone else besides just me to fully be my son. And so God has made us to live our walk with him communally. We need other people. And this, this I think, is the message of we all know that we need friends and community. The argument of in the common rule or the idea of spending an hour of conversation with a friend each week is saying, yes, we all know that. But a, the practice of American life runs counter to it. It's common wisdom, but it needs to become common practice. Mm. To, I mean, just think about one of our 168 hours a week going towards the pursuit of deep, vulnerable friendship. Um, that is countercultural because we're all living on a slant. And the slant we live on is to become busier, wealthier Americans who used to have friends or, you know, or, or busier, more important servants of our church or nonprofit who used to have community that they were, you know, in a vulnerable relationship with. And that's, that's tragic because I think one way to sum up the gospel is that Jesus looks at us, sees us, knows us fully, sees all the bad stuff and says, I love you and I'm sticking around anyway. I mean, that's one message, one way to sum up grace. 
And what is a friend besides somebody who knows you, has spent the time with you, knows your life, sees you fully, sees how messed up you are and says, I'm going to stick around as your friend anyway. And I think friendship as a way of embodying the message of the gospel to us in a real and fleshed way. And so when we do that on a regular weekly basis, we, and this might be small group for people. This might be an accountability relationship. Um, this might be like it is for me, just I have another friend that we, we tell each other all everything. We don't keep secrets, you know, budget, job, internet history, anything, you know, we're, we're open. And there's someone else out there who knows me regularly on a weekly basis fully. And the way that I feel the gospel internalized because of that friend um, changes a lot of things. And I just, this has been so important during the pandemic for people to, to remember, to fight for even now, wherever you are, wherever the vaccine progress is, where you're living, you, we need embodied and fleshed friendships. Um, and that can be a phone call. That can be an outside fire pit. That can be some other safe way of God, God, gathering, but we need people that know us fully. And it has to be common practice, not just common wisdom. So I really like push that one on, on the community side. Well, good. Well, those are two of the eight. So, but to, uh, to read the other, the book is The Common Rule. And I, I'm excited to know you have another book coming out on uh, this fall as well. So this fall, we'll, um, November. Yes. Expanding kind of the vision to family life together more, more explicitly. That's right. It'll be called habits of the household. And it's really about applying this idea of habits and formation to parenting and families and children, mm. which is the question everybody always asks me when we talk about the common rule. They're like, how does this matter to the home? Yes. And so after enough times of being asked that. I was like, you know what? I'm wondering this too. Let's go. <laughs> awesome. Well, um, Justin, as we're wrapping up here, what just uh, a, a thought of envisioning you, your present self and all the things you've learned, some the easy way and some the very hard way, now going back to yourself as you're preparing to transition from the mission field in China and the difficulty and yet the the the, the flourishing and blessings of that into law school and then the practice of law. What counsel would you give yourself as you're preparing for that transition? I would go back to find that person <laughs> and with compassion, you know, I would want to tell him, I would say to him, your, your habits are not going to change God's love for you, but God's love for you should change your habits. And I want you to know that because they matter. And none of this is, I, I want you to think about this, not legalistically, not like you can earn some affection that you didn't have before, but that you have God's love and presence with you. And that should matter to how you live. And I would want to see what he does with that and see if I could save him from the crisis. <laughs> the, the great, the, the wonderful providence of the story is that, you know, God teaches us through hard things. He's with us in the, in the valley of the shadow of death. Um, and sometimes I think I, I wish people, I hope people can learn this in a, the way that doesn't require a crisis, but the summary of it is, you know, your habits matter. What a rich, rich conversation. And I love how Justin's life reminds us that these things, these habits of spiritual life, are not only for people in some form of formal ministry. They're for everyone. Teacher, doctor, lawyer, social worker, janitor, entrepreneur, you name it. These things are for all of us. First of all, to sustain our soul in Christ who gives us life and joy and health, but also so that as we go out into the places where we work, wherever that is, we can be the bearers of the kingdom of God, working for the restoration and thriving of the people around us, whatever the sphere. 
So very good. Well, if you are interested in digging deeper into all this, I certainly would encourage you to pick up the book, The Common Rule by Justin Whitmill Early. It's an excellent book. And I would also invite you to join Justin and me and many other great folks at the CAFO 2021 Summit, which Lord willing will be in Cincinnati, September 15 to 17. Uh, Justin will be speaking from the main stage and also teaching a very hands-on workshop. And uh, you can learn more and register for CAFO 2021 at the CAFO website. And then just in wrapping things up, I would indeed encourage you, even before you, you know, get another book or get more information, that you act on the ideas you have. Choose one particular habit that you want to lean into. And as you heard, I think Justin and I both feel that one of the most significant of those could be this idea of scripture before technology. That when we first wake up in the morning, we don't turn to our phone. In fact, I'd encourage you not to store your phone in your room at all. Charge it in some other place in the house. And when you get up, don't inter interact with that screen until after you've had a chance to spend at least a little time in the presence of your good Heavenly Father. I promise that one habit really will have a significant impact on your day. And cumulatively, little habits like that, repeated day by day over time, will deeply, deeply shape us. They'll shape our hearts and our emotions and daily experience. They'll shape the impact we have on others. And ultimately, those little habits will shape the people we will become. You've been listening to Justice and the Inner Life with Jed Medefit, a production of the Christian Alliance for Orphans. To learn more about the Alliance, visit us online at capo.org.